Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's been over a year and a half since I released what I thought might be the final episode of Fox Hunter, barring an arrest being made in Rhonda Sue Coleman's 1990 murder case. In that time, Many listeners have contacted me with questions. Did I ever get to talk with John or Greg? What are the results of the DNA taken from under Rhonda's fingernails? And what, if anything, is happening with the investigation now? In this episode, I'll try to answer these questions, and I'll do my best to report to you what I know at this time, the good and the bad. And also... Something incredible has happened. That idea of a Rhonda's Law, which I discussed in episode 12, the same one that thousands of listeners signed petitions for, calling to attention the need for more rights for cold case victims' families. Well, as it turns out, we weren't the only ones who thought it was a good idea. Certainly want to start by thanking the Coleman and the Baker families who are here with us today that are truly the inspiration behind this legislation that I am proud to be able to sign. From Imperative Entertainment, this is Fox Hunter. If you're anything like me, when given the choice of good or bad news, I prefer the bad news first, because it gives me something positive to look forward to. And with that in mind, it's with regret that I have to report that since the last episode of the podcast, two people very important to this story have unfortunately passed away. Former Deputy Sheriff Leroy Sanders died on January 31st of this year. Sanders was the first officer to arrive at the scene where Rhonda's car was found abandoned on the night of May 17, 1990. I never had the chance to meet Mr. Sanders, as he had declined to speak with me, but I've heard good things about him, and he dedicated much of his life to law enforcement, which is commendable. But someone else I did come to know during my time in Hazelhurst also passed away recently. I don't, I don't know nothing. I don't hear nothing. I don't want to. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But to help that little old girl, if I could help her. But well, I know if she made it up there with the good Lord, him and her son discussed it, it it'll all come one day. I got that much faith in the Lord. Yeah. On November 22nd, 2022, Roy Robertson, charming, eccentric man with long, wild hair, who provided me with what many consider to be crucial evidence not heard before, passed away peacefully 
at the age of 79. And though I only knew Roy for the better part of a year, we talked fairly often. And we bonded somehow. I like the old timer. And we would call each other from time to time to check in. Sometimes talking about Rhonda's case. Sometimes just to say, hey, it was an unlikely friendship. Once my son was born, Roy was always asking how he was doing and (laughs) how my old lady was getting on. And he didn't have to do that. But that's the mark of a good soul in my eyes. And regardless of the colorful life he may have lived in the past, Roy was a man who I felt was very lonely at times, who saw himself as a bit of an outsider. Maybe that's part of the reason I befriended him. I believe he wanted to redeem himself in some way by helping solve Rhonda's murder, if he could. He even kept a picture of her hanging in his home. I was sad to see him go, but the image of Roy I'll carry with me is a happy one. It's the image I see when I listen to the very last voicemail he sent me. Hey, Betty, it's old Roy Roberts. I just call and check on you and see how that baby and old ladies do it. Ah, if you need me for anything, call me. Bye. The information Roy provided me was important. Information that was overlooked for decades or wasn't taken seriously at first, like the claim that former sheriff Mark Hall had implicated his own son, Marky, shortly before being killed in the line of duty. Roy worked closely with Sheriff Hall, giving him a first-hand account of the corruption inside the sheriff's department in the 80s and early 90s. And although I only knew Roy a relatively short time, he didn't strike me as a liar. He would always look me dead in the eyes and tell me exactly what he knew, matter-of-factly. Many of his claims, like that of corruption, were also backed up by former Hazelhurst police chief Steve Land, among others. But also, part of the tragedy of these two men passing on is that their knowledge of this case is gone as well. The only real record we have now of Roy's statements are what I've recorded. And I tell you this to say that as time goes on, more people will leave us, as Roy Robertson and Leroy Sanders have, And with them, more information that could help finally solve this case will be forever lost. As for anyone wondering if I was ever able to speak with John or Greg, I'm sorry to say I haven't. I feel that if someone hasn't spoken to me by now, that's not likely going to change at this point. I did, however, speak with John's wife a while back. Through a series of emails, she confided in me that this podcast had, for a time, made life very difficult for her and her husband. They received numerous threats, were villainized, and I've even heard someone went so far as to nail a death threat to their front door. That was not the goal of this podcast. I don't condone that kind of behavior, because at this point, no matter how any of us feel about someone's potential guilt, we have no hard proof, and we do live in a country where a person is innocent until proven guilty. But what's happening in the Rhonda Coleman investigation today? Or is anything happening? I do know that there are still leads that come in from time to time. People still contact me. And those deemed credible are given to the Coleman family and to the GBI. But I don't know what, if anything, happens with the information after that. But the biggest question I and most of you probably have 
is where are the results from the DNA sample taken from under Rhonda's fingernails we were told had been sent to the FBI's crime lab for analysis. I spoke with Rhonda's cousin, Natasha Bennett, who also serves as the Coleman family's attorney, about where things stand now on arguably the biggest break in this case in the past 30 years. Right now with the DNA, we really don't have any answers. What was relayed to us at that time was that it had been sent for processing, but that was the last communication. They had sent it for processing. The GBI, to my knowledge, and I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this, does not communicate with Milton and Gail at all. There's been no update provided to them about the DNA. I don't think there's been any update provided to them on the status of the case. And this is probably going on a couple years now that the GBI refuses to communicate with them. That's where it's at. The GBI does not communicate with them. I'm talking about the agents on the ground, the agents who are actually working the case. There's been you know, no contact from them at all. Milton and Gail shared with me that Natasha is correct, that things regarding Rhonda's case have been disappointingly quiet. I have not heard anything on it, on the DNA or whatever. The GBI has not talked to me. We haven't heard anything right now. No communications at all. I don't know their reasoning. It hasn't made me feel. Uh, like we're shut out. This seems a far cry from the regular contact they had with the GBI while I was investigating Rhonda's case. I had even received a call from the former special agent in charge myself. And I think they were just trying to appease us or trying to backtrack a little bit, sort of, you know, because they, they were scared somebody was fixing to come in on them and they were backtracking and, and they would get in touch with us or whatever. It's disheartening to know that there has been little to no communication from law enforcement for so long, even regarding leads and information that have been provided to them by the family and others. I have passed on a piece of information recently that was given to me. Never heard any follow-up on it. I have not heard anybody contact us saying, hey, you know, the GBI has um, talked to me again. And I will say this, whenever the GBI contacts anybody, we're usually like their second phone call. They'll say, hey, I just kind of had a meeting with the GBI. And we have not had any of those phone calls probably about the last year and a half, to be honest. Hearing this is frustrating, to say the least. Was the GBI simply placating us or trying to save face a bit because of all the attention surrounding Rhonda's case as this podcast aired and stirred things up? Or... Did the GBI simply not have the resources to dedicate to a 30-year-old cold case? Unfortunately, that's all the information I or the Coleman family have at this point. It's out of our hands. So sadly, we have no choice but to continue to wait for the DNA results or any other information from law enforcement. But even though that news is not what any of us wanted to hear, there is still a silver lining. And it may be the most important thing that's come from my entire investigation. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Near the close of the last episode of Fox Hunter, I discussed the idea of Rhonda's Law. A law that ideally would assist families like the Coleman's in obtaining information on their loved one's cold case. The idea initially stemmed from a conversation I had with Jody Ponzel, the man who brought me into the Coleman's lives in the first place, asking me to tell Rhonda's story. We were discussing our frustration with the case and how so little information had been provided to Milton and Gale over the past three decades while they waited for answers. And in that conversation, we came up with the idea of Rhonda's Law. Something that would give more rights to the family of victims like Rhonda, whose cases had also gone cold and stagnated for years while families waited for answers or any kind of information. I discussed this idea with Milton and Natasha and they were immediately interested, even though it seemed like an impossible feat to accomplish. Natasha began drafting a basic outline of what this law might actually look like. The original conversation and some of the ideas that we bounced around included having an independent review panel to look at these cold case homicides to see if the original investigators missed something you know with all the advancements in technology did they need to go back and process dna like in our case is there something that they missed did they miss interviewing a witness we just wanted an independent panel to review the actions of the gbi to see if they made any mistakes in the case that could be corrected and that could actually lead to the identity of the perpetrator of the crime that was our big push in the original version of Rhonda's Law. This was important because we knew through the internal files I was able to access, the GBI admittingly made mistakes in the investigation into Rhonda's death over the years. The second thing was we wanted families at some point to be able to read the case files of their family member to know what happened to them. So even if the case has never been solved, families got a right to know what happened to their loved one. In our case, we've been waiting 32 years for answers. And we had proposed, you know, after 20 years, at that point, a conviction is less likely as the years go on. So we said, after 20 years, a family's got a right to sit down and know what happened. They got a right to read that case file. Even if a cold case is never solved, the family at some point should be able to know all they can about their loved one's death. If nothing else, it helps with the healing process. And the third thing was we wanted DAs to be able to access the case files while they're active, while they're ongoing, to see if there are other charges that could be brought to bring somebody to justice for something. Like, for example, in Rhonda's case, we wanted the DA to look at the case to see if kidnapping charges could be brought against someone. If they can't prove a homicide, can they bring them to justice for something else? With homicide, you don't have a statute of limitations. But with these other crimes like kidnapping, once they're discovered, 
once you've identified someone, you start running into these statute of limitations issues. And that's what we wanted to avoid by time passing. Let the DA look at the case file and see if he can prove something to bring somebody to justice. This objective stemmed from the sitting district attorney who represents Hazelhurst not being allowed access to Rhonda's case file, preventing him from seeing if there were any charges other than murder that could be brought against a suspect. Is it better to have somebody sitting in jail for a kidnapping than walking free and never getting prosecuted for a homicide? That's kind of what our position was. That rough draft was then used to create a petition to the state of Georgia and Governor Brian Kemp, among others, and posted on change.org. Thousands of you signed and shared the petition, and soon I was getting calls from legislators and state representatives who wanted to help. People like Bill Werkheiser, who, though he wanted to help, told us the harsh reality that, unfortunately, about 90% of the roughly 900 proposed bills each year never make it to the governor's desk to be signed into law, meaning the odds were not in our favor. And I know exactly how hard it is to change a law. I knew what those odds were, but I didn't care. I was going to change it. And I was going to get whoever I had to to help me do it. Knowing how difficult this task would be, the Colemans began working with the family of slain University of Georgia law student Tara Louise Baker, whose 2001 murder case also remains unsolved. The Baker family had run into many of the same issues the Colemans had with getting information on their daughter's case. Baker's family even fought to get a death certificate issued for over a decade, in which time her identity was stolen more than once. And you can imagine how much grief and agony that would add to what they were already feeling. Both families felt they could get more traction and support by working together and pulling their resources. It turned out to be, you know, a beautiful partnership because they had um, political connections. They knew representatives. One of their family members had actually worked in the Georgia General Assembly and knew people, but they did not have the public support that we had. So we were able to come together and get, a, get some attention to Rhonda's Law. And this is around the time I received a call from a man named Scott Turner. And everything changed. As we now know, Scott Turner is a steely-eyed missile man. He is the man. I am Scott Turner. I'm a former state representative. I represented part of Cherokee County in the 21st House District from 2013 until 2021. I was made aware of the Fox Hunter podcast, uh, and that was a recommendation that was actually made to me by Micah Gravely, who was another state rep that I served with. And so your work is definitely followed by legislators on both sides of the aisle. Micah called me, he, he was like, you've got to listen to this, this podcast. I was gripped by it immediately, the, the story of Rhonda Sue Coleman. So when I reached out to you, it was with that spirit of, hey, I think I can help. Which is exactly what he said. No promises, but I think I can help. And he wasn't wrong. Scott is a very well-respected and connected individual in the political arena. I, through my experience, have an understanding that the average person doesn't have, but I also have a sense of duty and really an obligation to help use those skills and that knowledge that I obtained as a state rep now in private life to help others navigate it 
And so through our nonprofit, Eternal Vigilance Action, we offered to take this on as a pro bono thing for the Coleman family. And we began having regular calls. And those regular calls, with the help of Scott's expertise, experience, and connections, would result in several revisions and drafts of the bill. Numerous other people and organizations getting involved, including the GBI and the Sheriff's Association, which were initially big hurdles to get over, because for this to work, everyone had to be on board. Then I called a meeting with the GBI, and we ended up having a a series of meetings with just them. I proposed the language. We went back and forth several times. We went to the Sheriff's Association several times. We went through the Georgia Police Chiefs Association, Prosecuting Attorneys Council, who were extraordinarily helpful throughout this process. It takes a lot of people to make a law, and there were a lot more involved. But Scott and everyone else working passionately on the Coleman's behalf didn't let down, and were able to get that bill in front of people who could actually affect change in the state of Georgia and make them see its importance. On this, they were like, all right, we're, we're aligned. And they saw the power and the value in the idea, too. The proposed Coleman-Baker Act now included three main objectives. The first policy objective is allowing the families, after a case has reached three years old, to apply for a written case review. They apply by writing for a case review. And that application is in taken and they look at the case file. If anything in the case file would benefit from newer techniques, newer investigative methodologies, if new probative leads are found, if anything new is found, then the case is reinvestigated with the assistance of a new investigator. So from start to finish, somebody who is fresh eyes would get a look at the case. This is crucial. If the same investigator continues to look at a case year after year, and isn't able to solve it or move the case forward, it's time for someone new to have a go at it. Maybe a new investigator with fresh eyes and no bias will pick up on something that was missed by others or initially deemed not important to the case. The second part of the bill is the reporting structure. So right now, the GBI have over 500 cases. We have no idea how many there are with our locals. And so it created a database at University of Georgia's Carl Vincent Institute, which is a sort of a depository for data at the state level to collect cold case murder stats for each jurisdiction. So we'll actually have a handle on how big the problem is statewide. Again, crucial. To know that Georgia has no idea how many cold cases it has statewide is a crime in and of itself. This new database would help state and local law enforcement agencies to upload, track, and share information on cold cases. And the last thing it did is in the Baker case, the coroner in Athens Clark County refused to issue a death certificate for almost 10 years after Tara's death, stating that if he put the cause of death on the, the death certificate, it may give away sensitive information that only the victim and the killer knew and would disadvantage prosecution and possibly investigation of the case. That aspect of the bill clarifies that coroners can issue homicide, just the word homicide, as the cause of death. We clarified. They have that authority to do it so that there would be no question moving forward and families could 
move on with closing down the estate of their deceased loved ones. House Bill 88, whose name was later changed to the Coleman-Baker Act to honor Tara Baker as well as Rhonda, now had real steam behind it. It was introduced in the 2023 legislative session championed by Representative Houston Gaines of Athens, an advocate for the Baker family, and was modeled after a similar federal law that passed last year. We had a a framework to work off of for the federal law. If we were able to pass it, Georgia would be the first to adopt that act as a state law. And it's important to understand just because it was a federal law, it doesn't apply to the states. By this point, the media had begun to pick up on the story. There was a buzz growing around it now. And the pressure of actually getting it done was mounting. Georgia lawmakers may try to jumpstart unsolved cold cases with a new bill. The cold case bill got reassigned to a legislative subcommittee, adding another hurdle before it can pass the legislature in the next seven weeks. At the Capitol, Doug Richards, 11 Alive News. Victims and police say surging crime, as well as limited police resources, are creating too many unsolved cases. The GBI website the lists lawmakers heard from the families of murder victims who want the state to get better at handling cold now, cases. Now two state lawmakers want to empower families to nudge cold cases back into active investigations. One such unsolved case could be the 2001... With this pressure in mind, Scott confides in me something that I could actually really relate to that just because there's a buzz around something you care about and have invested yourself in to help someone else doesn't mean you'll actually succeed. I've worried about what am I doing to these families? Uh, What am I putting them through? Have I raised their expectations so incredibly high that if I don't get this done, that they'll they'll be heartbroken even more than they already are. So there is a great deal of pressure in this. And I I just, I felt like every day that I worked on it, like I had that in mind, like these are real human beings aspect with real emotions that have been put through the ringer. Like none of that escaped my thought process. Like I really didn't want to fail them. And then now I have a second family whose story is so frighteningly familiar to Rhonda's. Now I'm really feeling a lot of pressure. And, you know, the the reality is the legislative process can be a bitch. You know, it's it could break your heart. It was a series of setbacks, hiccups, revisions, and seemingly insurmountable odds. But on March 29th of this year, the Coleman-Baker Act was voted on one final time in the Georgia General Assembly. It passed unanimously. In addition, the state set aside $5.4 million to fund and operate a cold case unit within the GBI. This would provide for a staff of 10 full-time agents within the unit, a giant step up from off-duty or retired agents working on a few cold cases here and there in their free time. And that's, that's significant because now the GBI has the resources. And this is a, an important part, right, of this whole scenario. On Friday, April 28, 2023, 
The state of Georgia made history as Governor Brian Kemp signed the Coleman-Baker Act into state law. It is the first state law of its kind in the history of our nation. We're here for very important and a somber reason. Ron Sue Coleman and Tara Louise Baker, as well as all of those whose lives were cut tragically short without justice for their families. Certainly want to start by thanking the Coleman and the Baker families who are here with us today that are truly the inspiration behind this legislation that I am proud to be able to sign. To both of the families, let me just say I know that our actions today cannot mend your broken hearts. Thanks to your efforts, we are taking an important step in ensuring justice is not abandoned and cold cases are not overlooked as our families wrestle with their own losses. Today, we're helping to restore hope for those still grieving, hope for justice, and hope for closure. And it'll be an honor for me to now move to the table and sign the Coleman-Baker Act into law. A new Georgia law now allows families of homicide victims to request law enforcement agencies take a second or even a third look into long unsolved cases. Governor Kemp signed the cold case investigation. Governor Brian Kemp signing a bill into law today to give the families of cold case crime victims possible closure. Watching this all unfold almost didn't feel real. I was standing in front of the governor of Georgia, watching him pick up a pen to sign a law that we all played some part in, however small it was. As the law was signed, Milton, with Gale at his side, peered over the governor's shoulder, clutching a framed picture of his daughter in his hands. Alongside them, the Baker family stood, holding a picture of Tara. There were tears of grief and of happiness. And everyone was overwhelmed at how far we'd come. It was truly one of the most profound and proudest moments of my life. I spoke with the Coleman family shortly after this. I wanted to get their reactions to what had just happened, to the reality that they had accomplished the goal they had spent nearly two years of their lives working towards, against all odds. It makes me feel good. It makes you feel wonderful. This is not just for us. This is for any cold case in the state of Georgia. Anybody that's got a cold case, this gives them an avenue to get the case looked at, get it reopened, to get it looked at. I mean, every state should have this a bill like this because every state's going to have loved ones that are killed. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, green, purple, whatever. We are human beings. We bleed the same. We we have feelings the same. If there there's another child out there that's murdered and they got grieving family, that family deserves it too. No matter if the person is 18 or 80 that's gotten killed, the family deserves answers. And with this new law they'll finally get that opportunity. And less than a week after the law was signed, I learned that several other states have begun work to adopt their own versions of the Coleman-Baker Act, a trend 
that I hope continues. But for now, we just continue on, as we have for over a year and a half, to wait for the DNA results. I wish I had more information to share, but this is our reality. Things don't move on our timeline. We're at the mercy of the federal government. But I have heard that there are some people who are advocating to speed this process up. And hopefully, when the Coleman-Baker Act goes into effect, Rhonda's case will be among the very first to be reviewed by the GBI's new state-funded cold case unit. That only seems fair to me. One thing I can say for sure, though, is we aren't going anywhere. I think the slogan that you came up with, we will not stop, justice for Rhonda, that's where we're at. Yes, we're frustrated by the DNA still not being back, but we're not going to give up. We're still going to keep fighting to get that DNA pushed through, to get answers, to find out what happened to her, to find out who is responsible. We will not stop. And even still... While we wait, we can take comfort in the fact that Rhonda Coleman's name and legacy will live on, as will Tara Baker's, and continue to help countless other families who find themselves in the same unfortunate position as Milton and Gail. And for Rhonda, who wanted to be a nurse, to help others for a living, I think this would make her proud. I know I am, and you should be too for the part you played as listeners and supporters. We are all living proof that together, we can make positive changes in the world. That's inspiring to me. I think we're just amazed at how far and wide that her story has been shared through the podcast. It honestly left me speechless at times to know that people around the world were hearing about her, hearing what happened to her and fighting for justice as much as they could like we were they wanted answers everybody wants answers in this case Rhonda's story is about Rhonda's story but Rhonda's story is becoming something bigger than we ever imagined it could be it's going to bring some kind of meaning to her death to us it's our way of fulfilling Rhonda's dream She always dreamed of helping others. She wanted to be a pediatric nurse. She never got to fulfill that dream. So here we are helping her to fulfill it by helping other families get justice for their loved one. We may never see justice for our loved one. The Baker family may never see it for theirs, but there could be a family out there. And we're hoping there's lots of families out there who benefit from the Coleman-Baker Act and who can get answers. Gail shared her final thoughts with me. I just want to thank everyone, and I mean everyone, that helped get this bill passed from the governor on right on down to, to every person's congressman, senators, lobbyists, I'm here to tell you, they are just great. And I want to thank them from the bottom of my heart, from the mother of a murdered child. I want to say thank you. 
and there will never, ever be a day that you will regret signing these bills. To now hear the joy in Gail Coleman's voice, the matriarch of this family that has been through so much for so long, to know that her and Milton have come out on the other side of this with some glimmer of hope and light makes me truly happy. And no, the fight for answers isn't over, but we take the victories that we can for now and find solace in that. And I'm not going anywhere. Throughout the course of the past couple years spent creating this podcast, I've reaffirmed in myself that life is not to be taken for granted, ever. It's a gift. What you do with the time you have is up to you and you alone. And whether you're lucky enough to live well into your 70s like Roy or Leroy did, or spend a mere 18 years on this earth like Rhonda, I can tell you one thing for sure. It's never long enough. It all goes by in a flash. So make the most of it. To find out more information on the Coleman Baker Act, you can visit foxhunterpodcast.com or go to the Georgia General Assembly website and search for HB 88. Tell your local lawmakers you want the Coleman Baker Act adopted in your state. To find out more about the nonprofit advocacy group Eternal Vigilance Action, you can visit eternalvigilance.us. Fox Hunter is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Key cover art provided by Joe Freeman Jr. Keychalis 9032, 2015. Fox Hunter is a 10-episode series available every Tuesday morning. Follow us on social media at Fox Hunter Podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.